My name is Clancy, an alcoholic. I'm very glad to be here tonight, safe and sane and sober, because I didn't used to be, and I may not be again someday, because that's the, the waiting trap for all, everybody like us. But I'm feeling good tonight. My, I had my birthday this week, and uh, got a year older, and AA, and made me feel good. I was the first speaker of this meeting. I was just thinking back in the 1970s or late 1960s, and uh, that time we spoke, you spoke for two weeks, so you could say what you had to say the first week, and the second week you just sneered, <laughs> took questions, but uh, I'm glad we're down to this, and I hope we can catch our rent tonight. I belong to a group that we pay a thousand dollars a night, which is a little more heavy than you pay. <laughs> More sincere, I guess. <laughs> or our landlord is. <laughs> anyway, one of the great problems I, I had, I've been had sober a long time. I look back, one of the great problems I the great problems I had in my early sobriety, when I was in and out and in and out, I could not believe I was an alcoholic. And I see a lot of that when I work with people today. What are you waving for back there? Are you waving for some, any reason? Just, Jesus, dummy. Um, I'm not judging anyone. There you go. Don't say Anyway. I could hear me, that's all I'm concerned about. I, uh, I've had a lot of problems in dealing with people who did not believe they were alcoholics, and I certainly understand that, because I was in and out of AA for almost 10 years, and I could, I could accept the philosophy of it, but I knew I wasn't an alcoholic. And when you don't believe you're an alcoholic, this is just do-good stuff. And uh, no one's going to do do-good stuff if they can help it. And so I, uh, I didn't really believe I was an alcoholic, and I also had a, I had a great disagreement with God, so I didn't want to pray, and uh, that doesn't sound like much, but it really affects people who have had a religious youth. I had a religious youth, so I always believed in God, but eventually he became my enemy instead of my friend, and it started when I was in jail one night, they had to come and tell me my son had died when I was in jail. That made me feel terrible. And I cursed God and said, Damn you, God, you killed my little boy that never committed a sin in his life that I know of to punish me because I'm a sinner. Well, screw you, God. You'll get me when I'm dead. Maybe you'll send me to hell, but you won't get me for the rest of the time. And so I always had a little difficulty fielding those two objections in newcomers. In my case, I got a sponsor. I didn't want him. He was assigned to me. He didn't want it either. He was a movie actor, and he. Uh, I was glad to see him because I, I knew that they had a lot of money. And I figured I could. he needed a new friend, and I could help him. But it uh, turned out he didn't need a new friend. He needed a sober baby, I guess. So he really ground me, 
and spit me out. I always could outsmart people in AA, but I couldn't outsmart him. He, not that he was smarter than I was, but he's just more experienced. I remember I was living in the back seat of an abandoned car in the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax at that time. It was at the AA club parking lot, so there was a certain spiritual fallout. And, uh, he would call up the mission, he would call up the club say, at three o'clock, say, tell him to be outside the street at 5.30, 6.30, 6 o'clock. He'd say, you be out the street at the corner at 6 o'clock. I thought, how dare that guy do that to me? But I'd be out there and he'd wheel up in his big Lincoln and I'd jump in and away we'd go. He did a lot of speaking and I would go with him while he spoke and I'd sit in the front row and after about five weeks of this, I could give his talk better than he could, you know. And I, uh, I thought he's not so smart. And then on the way home, he'd drive, he'd tell me about God all the way back to Wilshire and Fairfax from wherever we were. Is our starting time inconvenient? Get the moon out of your eyes. I'm going to tell you something sad about that man. He took me on a trip with him on the SST. We went to Europe, England, England or France, to uh, the Russian astronauts and the American astronauts were all had the one get-together of all time. And I went, Buzz came to me and said, I, uh, my wife and I are divorced and my kids are in Hawaii. Who can I possibly take? <laughs> so we went to uh, France and it was amazing. We had eat outside a little restaurant. This was years after they were on the moon. People would come up and say, Monsieur Asseldon. You know, just, uh, they remembered him. But we went up on the uh, Eiffel Tower. And it but Half the way up, it seemed to me that he was getting a little queasy. <laughs> and we were three-fourths of the way up, and he said, I'm going to get out of here. And I was, I was glad. I said, okay. We got off, and uh, I thought to myself, huh, went to the moon, can't stand the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> but uh, some years later, at his 30th birthday party, I said to him one day, I said, Buzz, why did you get off the elevator that time in the Eiffel Tower? He said, I was afraid you were going to puke on me. <laughs> Why should I be nice to him? Anyway, this guy, uh, he would, uh, as he'd pick, leave me a meeting, we'd drive back to the mission, and he would tell me about God and his experiences with God, what a miracle it was in the end. I just couldn't stand it anymore. I thought, how can I get this guy to stop his interminable sermonizing? And I thought, well, I'll tell him a... I'll ask him some questions. He's such an egomaniac, that should eat up the whole space going back. So I said to Buzz, I said, I said Buzz, uh, his name was Buzz. That's Buzz. His name was Bob. I said, Bob... You know, one thing that's puzzled me, I was in and out of AA for a long time, and I know a lot about AA, and uh, I just don't understand it. My problem never was really alcohol. 
My problem was always these feelings I had that made me so uncomfortable, and alcohol would soothe them. That's why I drank alcohol. I didn't, and I started drinking. I said, keep drinking. But I didn't drink and start drinking because I craved alcohol. I just craved a cessation of the emotions inside of me, the feelings of difference and loneliness and sadness and uh, such as that. He said, well, kid, he said, that's not unusual. He said, that's not unusual. I said, but my emotions are my problem. Do you think I should go to a psychiatrist again? I've been to one. And he... uh he said, no, I don't think so. I said, what do, you, what do you think is my problem? Now, I've told you as much about me as I can. What's my problem? He says, you're an alcoholic. I said, how could I be an alcoholic when my number one problem is not alcohol? He said, kid, alcoholics aren't people whose problem is alcohol. Alcoholics are people whose answer is alcohol. If it's your answer, you're in trouble. And you must always drink it because eventually reality will become untenable around you. I thought about that the next day lurking around the club. I thought, what if that guy's right? And I'd run little tests on myself and remember they got out of the nut house in Texas and I stayed sober till, I swore to stay sober till I committed suicide. And, uh, I've always had a great problem in living in reality and I eventually always drink. Now, the first that's true, what if that's accurate? I just have to assume it is, maybe, for the time being. So I'll do what he's telling me to do, these dumb things. Because if, you, if you're not an alcoholic, you don't want to do these things. These are embarrassing, humiliating things. But if you're an alcoholic, they seem to be rather reasonable. So I pretended to be an alcoholic to myself. And I started doing what he told me. And uh, that was the beginning of my life. As a result, over a period of time, I, uh, I look back and I remember, I thought I might be an alcoholic. And I took the second step. I accepted a power greater than myself. I remember he told me, can't you believe in a power greater than yourself? I said, oh. He said, uh, can't you believe in AA? I said, well, I like it better than I used to, but not much. He says, do you think I'm doing better than you are? I said, of course you are, Bob. Congratulations, I'm your new higher power. <laughs> and I could accept that because he was my higher power and I believed what he told me. And in so doing, I took the second step, although I didn't know it. I took the first step of adopting the role of alcoholic and then the second step of adopting a higher power. And the third step of just doing what the higher power says. So I just, I took all three of those steps in one fell swoop without even knowing it. But since 1958, I've not had any other therapeutic. I sponsored a psychiatrist one year, but he got crazy and left town. <laughs> I tried to help him, but uh, I've not had any medication of any kind in my body. I've smoked no marijuana. I have done nothing that alters my perception of reality. And uh, I haven't gotten to be wonderful. What saved my bacon is the world has shaped up around me little by little. It is now bearable and tenable and enjoyable. And sometimes I even enjoy waking up in the morning and getting out of bed, see what's going on. 
But I think that was the great lesson for me. He wanted me to take a, he, we got into the, he wanted me to take a fourth step, and I always fought that because I'd want my future in the hands of some crazed babbler who might burn me off. But uh, I finally took my fourth step one night. I was working at the Gaty Delicatessen on Sunset Boulevard. Very few people here remember that. I put a curse on them, and ten years later, they they're out of business. <laughs> but I got fired. I was a dishwasher at the Gaty Delicatessen. I got fired the first night because I became aware the busboys were bringing in more dishes than the waitresses were taking out. So I knew they were getting dishes elsewhere to hurt me because I was an Anglo. <laughs> and uh, so I just piled them up and Kai came over and said, you're not doing many dishes. I said, well, I'm doing as many as they were using this restaurant. He said, no, you're not. What the hell's wrong with you? And I said, I'm an AA. He said, I don't give a shit what you're in. You just don't wash enough dishes. And I've thought of that many times now. If you're kind of new, you might remember that. It sounds kind of crass to say it. But nobody really gives a shit what you belong to. They want you to do your work. Do your work and you'll be in business. But anyway, I got fired. I went back to the A Club, Wilshire and Fairfax. And everybody had gone home for the meeting. It was about 11 o'clock. Just a manager was sitting there, a guy named John Sullivan. I said, Sullivan, man, I just got fired as a dishwasher. People I got sober after me got cars and girls and doing long, and I can't even get a hold of a job as a dishwasher, and I'm smarter than him. <coughs> yeah, I said, I might as well be drunk. He said, you're right. That's what you expect from that saying, man. I said, what do you mean, Sally? He said, well, there's about 180 members of this club, and at least 170 of them think you're a jerk. <laughs> and would be glad if you'd get drunk and die. <laughs> the other ten have to defend you incessantly all day and all night. Now, you might make those ten people feel bad, but you'd please the 170 people if you just get drunk. I said, I wouldn't do that. No, they won't. They won't get me, and I went back in the back room, and I got some paper, and I wrote my inventory. I didn't write it with the, according to the book with the rules and what Mrs. Brown did or things like that. I'm a dirty son of a bitch here. <laughs> I would suggest to you, if you're about to write your inventory, wait till you're feeling real bad. It, uh, it's easier to remember things then. When you feel good, it's, well, I guess I screwed up a few times, but... Nothing serious. <laughs> but when you feel bad, I'm a dirty bastard and here's why. <laughs> you gotta watch the teardrops fall on the paper. Then you know you're getting there. And I came out of the sheaf of papers. I said, well, Sullivan, I wrote my damn inventory and I don't feel any better. He said, well, nothing I can tell you, kid. So I went out and got my car and went to bed. And I guess he called my sponsor. Because my sponsor called me the next morning, called me at the phone and said, I understand you wrote your inventory. I said, how do you know that? He said, we sponsors know. <laughs> and I thought maybe it's true. He said, I want you out in the corner at 6 o'clock tonight. Have that inventory with you. We're going to take your fifth step. I said, Bob, 
Not tonight. I gotta evaluate these things. Some of these things go back to when I was just a kid. I can't remember anything about them. Because I really am not a nice person. I'm a loser and a user. And I use, I've used people to come to the top a lot of times. He said, uh, well, just be out there with your sheet of paper and sheets of paper and, uh, I pulled up, he pulled up at seven, six, six o'clock and I got in. He had a bunch of flashlights. We went along the coast highway to Oxnard. It got dark. He said, take the flashlight and read. And I read it. And, oh God, it's worse than I remembered it. I'm really a, I'm, I'm a sneak and a liar and a cheat and a thief and I'm not pleasant at all. I read it all the way up. I thought, he's going to make me get out of this car at Oxnard. I'm going to have to walk back to Los Angeles. But I finished. I said, well, that's all, Bob. He said, are you done now? Uh, he leaned him and said, that's the best thing you've done since you got sober, kid. And I said, thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> but little by little, I went through the steps that way. I made amends to people I never thought I'd make amends to. Made amends to a guy in Dallas who's, he said, you have to go to Dallas to make it right with this guy. I said, you you screwed up his truck. His, you wrecked his truck. I, well, I didn't mean to. He said, that's got nothing to do with it. You save your money till you got bus fare to go down there and make it up to him. So I did. I said, got little jet crappy jobs. And I saved my money. And I found a bus fare down to Dallas. And I went and looked him up. I said, Doug, I've come here. I, I'm living in Los Angeles now. But I've come here to tell you that I... I acknowledge the fact that I ruined your pickup truck, and I'm going to make it up to you. If it takes a dollar a month for the rest of my life, I'll make it up to you. I'll physically make, financially make it up to you. He said, okay, well, that's nice. I said, he said, why are you doing that? I said, I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, what are you doing in Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, well, I guess I'm an alcoholic. That's what I was drinking most of the time I was here. What did you think was wrong with me? So I thought you were an asshole then. I think you're an asshole now. <laughs> Get out of my office. I'm so glad I saved all my pennies to hear that. And but little by little, I, I was able to open up to my friends again, and I started sending my children who were living in Texas. I had four kids at that time, and I started sending them what they should have. Little Christmas presents and cards and notices and ballot birthdays and congratulations and things. And little by little I started to feel better. And, uh, I had to go back to the University of Wisconsin where I'd been expelled after I'd spoken at commencement, which was an unusual situation. And they'd expe expelled me. But I went back there and I, the chancellor wouldn't see me. I had to go back another time and he wouldn't see me. I went back another time. My, but my folks lived nearby, so I could go over and visit my folks. And uh, one day, uh, he did see me, and I tried to make amends. And, and he was very cold about it, but that's not the point of it. Sometimes we, we expect to make amends, and people are going to fall over us with admiration, but that's not true. We are, we, we're still screwed up. And I, uh, little by little, I came to... I got a, my sponsor died, and I got a different sponsor, a guy named Chuck Chamberlain down in Laguna Beach. And he, little by little, with his being, convinced me that God was my friend.
And uh, then I begin trying to help others. That's what's all I've done in the last almost 60 years is work with others. And uh, they're an ungrateful bunch, I'll say that for them. <laughs> Some of them are in this very often audience plotting against me, but they, you'll never get me. But I'm, that's why I'm so pleased. And so I had to wonder, what makes it alcoholic, really? Is it that you're drunk all the time? No, not at all. I've only known a couple of people who drank, and you drink that hard, you drink till you die. It's, if you, if you find that you drink, and it changes your perception of reality, it makes you more secure. It makes you, I'm something. Yeah. Uh, this, this disease has been called the perception of, or disease of perception, and it certainly is. Because what curses me when I stop drinking is I'm so glad to have stopped, but little by little, they, all around me, they start acting up and acting badly, and I don't like them. And I uh, just finished directing a grand opera at the University of Texas in El Paso, and three months later, I was in the Texas Nut House because I'd stopped drinking and it got so bad I committed suicide, as I said. And I, uh, directing, they, <laughs> they saw in my record that I directed a grand opera, so I was qualified to direct the Christmas pageant of the Christmas Texas Nut House in Big Spring, Texas. <laughs> really wasn't very difficult to get, but, just trying to hold the three wise men off the Virgin Mary in rehearsals was more than I could do. But little by little, the steps, I could always give you arguments against the steps. I could argue with them anytime. And so it's kind of odd for me to get up and say, that's the only truth I've ever found in my life. When I do those things, I don't get better, but the world gets better. And I can still be fallible. And I will always be fallible. I have a great letter at home that Bill Wilson wrote to some people in Chicago who wrote to him and said he had disillusioned them because he was, he had made some mistakes. He said, nothing I've ever done or said has implied that I am above mistakes. He said, I'm as, as weak as anyone. The point is, I, uh, I got here first. That's all. And I, uh, that's certainly true. I, I got, got to meet Bill Wilson. I heard him speak in the 1960 at the International Convention, which was held in uh, uh, Long Beach that year. And I was in, a couple years later, I had a job where I got sent to New York to get some signatures on documents. I'd become believable, I guess. And uh, I got them all done the first day and the second day. I thought, I think I'll go over and see Bill Wilson. So I went over to the World Service office and said, I want to see Bill Wilson. The girl said, well, he's, he's booked up hour by hour for the next two weeks. But if you want to come back in three weeks, I'll get you in quickly. I said, no, never mind. I won't, I'll, I'll be back in Los Angeles then. So I went over to the archives and was kind of looking through the pictures, old pictures of Bill and Dr. Bob and their children and their family and letters they'd written and newcomers. And uh, all of a sudden, here comes Bill Wilson. He said, are you the young man who wanted to see me? I said, yes, sir. 
he said, uh, well, my 11 o'clock didn't show up. Come on in. So we sat and talked for an hour. And you know what he said? Hmm. I don't remember. <laughs> but it would have been something for your dessert you needed to hear, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I knew Bill Wilson. I knew Dr. Bob's son very well. Dr. Bob died before I was in his got sober. But Dr. Bob's son and I used to go out and speak together at conventions. And he was a nice young man, good, good guy. He always talked about how the day his, the day Bill Wilson called around and found someone and got a hold finally of this wealthy woman in West Akron and said, yes, my, uh, my, this week my doctor told me I was, he was an alcoholic. And we're all in the Oxford group, we've all been praying for him, but he's drunk. And so she made a deal where Bill would meet Dr. Bob at her house. And they went out together. Bill went out in his streetcar. Dr. Bob went out in his car. And that young Bob used to talk about that. His sister was sitting there because his father was too hungover to drive. Sister was sitting there, his mother and father in the back. And all the way out there, he said, his father just kept saying, Ann, I know today's Mother's Day and I've ruined it again for you. And I'm sorry, I hope the kids forgive me. And I'll give this guy ten minutes, but I don't want to listen to another lecture about my drinking. I can't stand any more lectures about my drinking. I just, and, uh, they got out there and they had a bite to eat and this guy, the doctor and the Wall Street operator from New York got together in a room and they stayed there for three and a half hours. And they came out and the doctor said to his wife, my God, Ann, I can't believe it. That guy knows how I feel and why I drink. Nobody else in the world does. I thought I was the only one in the world like that. He said, he's just like me. Would you stay with me? Would you stay with us for a week? I know you're busy, but could you stay with us for a week and we can talk some more. So they sat together every day for a week, talked of spiritual matters, and Bill got impervious and said, Bob, or Bill, he said, I'd like to have you stay this weekend with my family because I'm going to New York to Atlantic City, National Convention of the of the Medical Association. I was there last year and I was so drunk and they ridiculed me and treated me badly. I'm going to go back to the show when I'm like when I'm sober. And Bill said, sure, I'll be glad to. He said, I'll be home Tuesday morning. And Tuesday morning, the phone rang, Mrs. Smith answered it, and the woman was on the phone. She said, I'm sorry, so sorry to tell you this. This is Dr. Bob's office nurse. They carried him off the train today, so drunk he couldn't walk. I guess the big experiment didn't work out. And Mrs. Smith said, I'll go down and get him. We'll come down and get him, Mr. Wilson. I'll come down and get him. They came down, got him, brought him back to home. He was crying. I've, <laughs> I've worked with a number of alcoholics. And one of the most sickening scenes of all is a crying alcoholic. Jesus, they're dreadful. I'm sorry. <laughs> Boom! Now you're sorry, you son of a bitch. Uh, but they put him to bed. He sat up suddenly on Thursday. 
said, my God, what day is it? It's Thursday, Bob. He said, oh my God, I've got to, I've got to do a, I've got to do an operation, a cancer operation, and I can't do it. Look at my hand. My hand is shaking. I can't hold a knife. My God, they'll take away my license. What will I do? And his new friend Bill went out and got him some beer to steady his hand. And away he went. He said, I'll be home about two o'clock. And two o'clock came and he didn't come. And three o'clock came and he didn't come. And four o'clock came and five o'clock. This son of a bitch must be drunk again. Six o'clock he opened the door and there he was cold silver. Where you been, Bob? He said, when I was out doing that operation, right in the middle of the operation, I thought, the Oxford group wants me to make amends for my errors. And I never thought that applied to a doctor. But I realized I'm a human being first instead of being a doctor. So I've been all over Akron today making amends to people. And I feel wonderful. And Bill said, good. That was June 10th, 1935. And that's the anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, a couple of months ago, I spoke at their anniversary in Akron, Ohio. It was uh, only the 82nd anniversary. It seemed like all that stuff took place a thousand years ago. 82 years ago. That's all AA's been in existence. And it's risen all over the world. No thanks, I've got a ride. <laughs> One of my agents outside. <laughs> but uh, it's expanded now. It's in 150 million family, 150 countries, something over 2 million sober members of AA, and which is amazing when you stop thinking. In all of experience of mankind up to 1935, no one was sober. No one like us was sober. And so what we wanted to do was find out how they stay here and cherish it. And I hate to tell you this, newcomer, but listen to your sponsor. If you don't have confidence in your sponsor, get a different sponsor. I, I remember lying awake at night thinking, how could I kill that old bastard and not get caught? <laughs> but I'm glad I didn't, couldn't think of it because I would have been dead. So I'm very glad to be here tonight. I'm glad to be safe and sane and sober and celebrate another birthday based on 12 steps and the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the end of my talk. And now I believe is the question, question and answer part portion. Any questions? Yes, sir. How has AA changed the most? Well, one great change is that it has a great infusion of non-alcoholics, narcotics addicts, emotional addicts. Uh, many times, some, I hate to say this, but it's true. People go to Al-Anon and think, I guess I'm an alcoholic because I feel the same way they do. And they suddenly become an alcoholic overnight. But, and they only miss one thing. They miss the identification. Because the only thing that makes AA work is it's a bunch of pretty words without identification. But with identification, it's work. Somebody says something, as Dr. Bob said to his wife, my God, they know how I feel. They know how I feel. When you can hear somebody get up in the podium or talk to you in the back seat of a car and talk about how they feel and you say, my God, that's how I feel.
then you have a start towards being a sober person. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. What she say, Steve? Dual diagnosis. Well, I haven't had much luck with that. I was on medication off and on for many years with the intensity of my emotions, but I, uh, I've never taken one since I got sober. Once I began working the steps, I didn't. Turns out I didn't need the medications, and that that medication is problem because it seems to me that it puts the cart before the horse. We are not an AA to get off drinking. We are an AA to learn to live in reality. And if I'm taking something else, smoking marijuana, taking dope, I'm not in reality. I'm somewhere else, and it's not working for me. In my opinion. I speak for Bill and Dr. Bob in heaven as well. <laughs> what else? When you start with a new person as a sponsee, how do you begin with a new I, Well, I've often said that I begin by teaching them how I take my coffee. <laughs> Two sugars and cream and be quick about it. But uh, that really is kind of a joke, because of, I, pardon? Oh yes, what do I do with newcomers when I start working with them? I, uh, we go to a lot of meetings together, and I kind of probe him little by little of how, how he feels, and what his feelings of difference are, and what makes him not feel that he's a member here. And little by little explain it to him as much as I can. I went to a meeting every night for I know, a couple of years, and I'm glad I did. I only missed one night. One night, a guy, a guy who was a nice guy, took me to the movies. And my sponsor said, "Where were you last night?" Well, Jim took me to the movies. Oh, did he? Oh, well. Next time you have one of your suicidal depressions. Why don't you call uh, somebody in the movie industry and not bother me with that shit? Uh, I've said that many times to others. Anything else? I just I just open a lot of meetings and talk, meetings and talk, meetings and talk. I think that that's the way you break through the wall. Yes, sir. The 11th step is difficult for me. It was always difficult for me, after, especially after I read it and thought about it. So I sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understand Him. And uh, I'm not much of a meditator. Class A people, I mean type A people are not meditators much. But I can, I've learned to meditate a little bit when I go to bed at night before I go to sleep. And I, when I'm sitting in traffic, an endless supply of traffic as I did tonight, I meditated a little bit for a few moments. All I ever try to remember is God means good for me. If I'm not getting good, I'm doing it wrong. And, uh, but the second half of that step is more 
conducive to thinking, praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. Every night when I go to bed, as I have for many years, I ask God to help me find the actions that will allow me to become the type of man that I was meant to be. I don't know if that's the right answer or not, but I seem to sleep better when I may be able to say that sincerely. And I, uh, I remember I have to ask God, and if power comes with it, allow me to use that power wisely and well, not in some self-aggrandizement. But that's uh, the 11th step is just, to me, is quite simple. Just as long as I remember to pray for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry it out. I think that's the operative part of the step. Anything else? Yes, sir. How did you get involved in the Midnight Mission? How did I get involved in the Midnight Mission? Well, the last day I drank, October 31st, 1958, I was came out of an all-night theater sick. My front teeth were kicked out from the Phoenix jail, feeling terrible, penniless. And some guy said, do you want to sell a pint of blood? I said, Jesus, do I ever. <laughs> and we walked up for about five blocks to the blood bank, took a drop of blood over here, and we said, sit in that room. He said, who's Emerson? I am. He said, you don't have enough iron in your blood to sell a pint of blood here, sorry. I said, Jesus, like, could you give me a cup of coffee anyway? I'm so sick. I'm so sick. I can't help you, pal. He said, but down here about four blocks, there's something called the Midnight Mission, which is designed for bums like you. I think they're serving breakfast. So I went down there and I asked him breakfast, please. Just got done serving. Sorry, we're all done. I said, come on, for Christ's sake, give me a bite to eat and a cup of coffee. He said, sorry, I can't help you. And I grabbed him by the lapels. I come on! As a human... As a human being, help me. Two guys stepped over one, detached each hands, and they took me to the door and threw me out in the rain. I said, don't come back, you phony son of a bitch. I thought, I'm not a phony son of a bitch. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I wrote to L.C. Dummer, as for the Borden Company, at one time, I'm making a lot of money. I've had my picture in the New York Times for my achievements. Uh, but it's really hard to explain these things in midair. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, some years later I was working at KHJ where I helped create Boss Radio, if any of you are old enough to remember it. And uh, got a call one day said, the director of the Midnight Mission just dropped dead of a heart attack. You know anybody who wants the job? I said, tell me a little bit about it. Well, you have to have some empathy for the men on the streets, apparently. And they don't pay much. Eight or nine thousand dollars a year. And, uh, it's really, it really is kind of a tough job. But I don't know anybody who wants that job. That's ridiculous. And I, and my wife and children get moved out here in 1973, I guess. 63. And I was lying in bed one morning and said to my wife, maybe I'll go down there and just straighten them out. They're screwed up. I'll straighten them out for, for a couple of weeks. That'll make me feel good. So I went to Dr. Authority and I said, yeah. So I went in there and I worked around at all the jobs and 
I straightened out their finances and straightened out their paperwork, got their mess. And I, but I really enjoyed it because there's a lot going on there, you know. People getting stabbed and shot and killed and drunk and blah, 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 blah. I want to kill you, you son of a bitch. I could hardly wait to go to work in the morning to see what's going on. And one morning I was lying in my bed in January of 1974. I just, I think I'll take that job for maybe six months. She said, well, if you want to trade $100,000 a year for 8000 a year, you're welcome. I said, well, I know it isn't the money, it's the, it's excitement. And so I'm down told I'd like to be the temporary director of the Midnight Mission. And uh, I went again today, because I'm still the director of the Midnight Mission from 1974. I, uh, I've been there a long time, 43 years, on February 1st. And it's been a lifesaver for me. It's given me a lot of time to work with others. I've had a lot of people in my office where I've denounced them and hurt them and they cried and left stayed sober and I uh, everybody that I sponsor everybody that I sponsor has been in the midnight mission sitting in my office thinking what, why doesn't the old fool die but uh, that's my experience I was thrown out of the midnight mission physically and I went back many years later and exacted a horrible revenge yes sir There are other ways to be of service, but I think the purpose of talking to someone is for me, not for them. Repeat the question. Will you marry me? Uh, work for that guy, the Houston Astros. Well, anyway. Anyway, the question was, did Bill and Dr. Bob believe that everyone who got to the 12th step had to try to convince somebody to be a sober member or was it just you know, there are other ways of being of service and there are many other ways of being of service but I think the great value of communicating with someone else is for my sake not theirs Bill and Dr. Bob realized this when after sitting discussing their spiritual values for a week Bob got drunk and after that they they realized we have to find someone to tell about it that's what we got to do and, the doctor called up the hospital where he used to be invited, and he called up a nun there, Sister Ignatia, and uh, said, do you, have an alcohol, do you have an alcoholic there we could talk to? And at that time, you couldn't get into a hospital as an alcoholic. You had to have something else, pulmonary problems or something. And she said, yes, I do. I have a man here, and he is... He moved here from Louisville, Kentucky, to get away from his drinking, and apparently he couldn't do it. He's been drunk in, in our hospital a number of times. He has arteriosclerosis, so he comes in for that, but he is a drunk. So they said, can we talk to him? She said, well, I don't know. Let me call his wife, see if she will permit it. And I heard that guy in the bed talk 50 years ago. His name was Ed. My name is Ed, and I'm an alcoholic. I was laying in that bed in Akron, Ohio, and I knew I'd never be sober. And my wife came in and said, two fellows want to talk to me about my drinking. I said, no, 
I'm not going to talk to anybody else about my drinking. I'm sick of talking about people about my drinking. It's making me crazy. But my wife's a strong woman. <laughs> so I talked to those two fellas. And they didn't talk to me once about my drinking. They talked about their drinking and what drinking made, how it made them feel. I thought, my God, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. Which is the story that most of us feel when we get an identification. My God, I'm not the only one. So what a great day that is. What a great moment. Because then you can extrapolate. There must be some more here too. And little by little, the, uh, the knowledge they had is that we have discussed spirituality for a week, but we must tell somebody about it. And that's really what it boils down to. It doesn't mean that you have to become a crazed 12-step or anything, but you find some poor sick son of a bitch in the corner and sit down and talk to him. Tell him, I know how you feel, pal. I used to feel that way too. There's a way out of it. It doesn't seem like any good. Those steps just seem stupid. But it's really odd thing. If you take them, you get, you get better. And that's the, I think that's what the 12th step is about. Having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in our affairs. There's no, I don't see any, any conflict in any of that, those phrases. They can try to do better. They try to change their life. They try to tell somebody behind them who's not quite there yet. So I think that's the answer, to the best of my knowledge. Anybody else? Okay, will you marry me? <laughs> you see, my wife has passed away and I'm very lonely. <laughs> and you have one more question. Yes, sir. Well, for what saved my life is when I became, when I believe my sponsor was a higher power. That's why they asked it in there. There was a guy that used to be in Philadelphia in the early, very early days. He wound up in San Diego finally. But he kept getting drunk and coming back saying, I can't accept that God stuff. I just can't. I'm too strong a religious person. I can't accept that God stuff. So in his honor, they wrote, as you understand him, in all of our literature. And it's kind of hard to debate that. God, as you understand him. Okay, I understand he's a vicious, malicious old fool. That's good. That's God. You got it. <laughs> or God is loving and kindly and warm. And I think that uh, that's why they said it that way. So you and I, if our vision of God is not cohesive, uh, we don't. it doesn't have to be. You have a vision. I have a vision of God, a power greater than myself. Okay?